What's up, everybody? I'm JJ John J. Stramski. And I'm Jason Goff. And if you haven't heard, The Ringer has gone local. I'm bringing the fire. I'm bringing the rain from the Big Apple with my show, New York, New York. And I'm repping Chi-Town with my new show, The Full Go on All Things Chicago. We've got episodes three nights a week with all the reaction to the local teams and guests. Plus bonus episodes around all the big games and storylines. So whether you're uptown, downtown, in the burbs, or a transplant. Make sure you follow New York, New York, and The Full Go on Spotify or wherever you get your podcast. One month in, we're going to talk with Jonathan Vilma Fox. He did the Giants and Saints game, but we're also going to talk a little bit about Urban Meyer and what that is like in the locker room. Uh, good stories out of that. We got a new game from Saruti, quarterback career over-unders, and WeWork. It's a company you've probably seen wherever you're walking in a major city, but there's a book about the place, and let's just say it was an awesome book, and we've got both authors on, and life advice as always. It's the Ryan Russillo podcast presented by FanDuel. The road to the NBA Finals starts now, and FanDuel is the best place to get in on the action. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Quick Bets, which are back and better than ever for the NBA playoffs and FanDuel. Find what you're looking for faster and easier with more props right at your fingertips. You can check out live bets like three-minute markets and exclusive live bets like quarter player props, player assist combos, and more. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming, so please visit rg-help.com to learn more about the resources and helplines available and listen to the end of the episode for additional details. Must be 21 and older. 18 plus in D.C. and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit rg-help.com. This episode is brought to you by Arby's. $5 doesn't get you what it used to get you. I asked for change the other day. The guy gave me back four. Introducing Arby's new two for $5 chicken wraps. In your choice of ranch, barbecue, honey mustard, and a bonus flavor called Incredible Value. Ever heard of it? You can't taste it, but boy, is it sweet. Arby's two for $5 chicken wraps are here for a limited time at participating locations. Visit an Arby's near you or order ahead on the Arby's app. Before we talk to Vilma, this is Saruti's idea, and I love it. Now, back in the old radio show days, we did a segment with NBA players where it was like Chris Paul, it was Dwight Howard. It was the best players in the league, and it was when they were still like in their primes. This is pre-Dwight in the Orlando disaster and all that stuff. So you think about the players going back, I don't know, seven, eight years. Mello would have been one of them, Derrick Rose. And we did an over-under on how many NBA championship rings each of those guys would have. So you'd set the number at a half for somebody, but if somebody was like really good, you may say LeBron, like, oh, we'll set it at two and a half. Like, can he get three more rings than maybe after the first or second one that he won? Because I don't remember the exact year that we did it. But when you're doing it in that time, you know, you always are kind of thinking more positively about the player Rudy, when we say like half a ring for Chris Paul, and at that point I'm like, well, he's going to get one at some point. Now Dwight ended up getting his, but it, there's there's a bit of a stipulation in it where you'd say you kind of have to be one of the main guys. You can't like show up at the end. Where if you had a half and said Mellow over, and if he gets one with the Lakers this year, that's not really the exercise. But the point of it is, is that we were always so positive all the time. And when I go back and think about the names and how we set the over unders, almost everybody went under. So. You have an idea that we're going to do with young quarterbacks right now, and instead of rings, which would be really probably a waste of time, and who knows, this might end up being a waste of time, but I love the idea. So you'd give me the idea, and then we're going to run through the young quarterbacks and kind of use how we're we're making this the same thing. 
Yeah, basically, I've got seven guys that, you know, we've seen, you know, a couple of rookies, but most of them are second or third year players who I think we 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 kind of think we know who they are. And I'm going to give you a player, a real life comp. So either a current other quarterback or like a guy that played in the past. And then you tell me whether or not if this guy has that career, whether or not that's a success or a failure. Yeah, right. So it's kind of like, all right. The rookies we don't know enough about. So for a couple of the rookies, it'll be an absurd exercise. Yeah. And the, the fun part will be to revisit this, whether it's the end of this season or even later beyond, because that's when you're really like, wow, we actually thought that. Because in the moment, my my guess will be the reaction to this is that I'm too negative or excuse me, not that I'm too negative in that the audience will be like, no way, that guy's going to be way better than that. And I'm going to be kind of like, no, that'd actually be pretty good. So I don't know if that's actually negative or positive. So whatever. Let's just go to it. we got seven guys here. All right. First one, Baker Mayfield. My comp for him, his career comp, Alex Smith. Success or failure? Well, we all know that I'm not the biggest Alex Smith guy, um, but Alex Smith is still good enough um, to be a starter in this league for a long time. Um, Took so, three teams you know. to the playoffs. You yep. know, right. I, th- yeah. I think the comp is like he can if you've got players around him, he can be good. And but if you don't, he can't be good. He can't carry you. I always think quarterbacks are a bit like dating where if you're New England, your standard is a lot higher than, say, Chicago. Um, you know, Chicago just loves somebody to play the position for a bunch of years in a row. If he's great, great. But, you know, Chicago's the guy in the relationship that's like my ex does meth and pawn my car and. New England is the guy in the relationship being like, yeah, you know, my last, my last girlfriend, you know, was a dancer in Mallorca and, you know, we used to travel the world together, you know, so like his, his standard is different. So for Cleveland to have an Alex Smith, and if that's Baker, now see, I know exactly what everybody's going to say. Well, Baker, number one pick, like no way that would, you know, Baker's been bad this year. Um, Last year, it felt like he was starting to turn things around a little bit. It's only a month in. I'm not now going to say that he's bad. I have no idea what you're supposed to do with that contract because really it's just it's it's a matter of timing and not even who you are. So anytime anybody gets mad about the quarterback contracts and what a guy is or isn't getting, it's like, well, I don't know if he's the most recent to sign. He's going to be a starter for the next five years or projected that he's usually going to get a super contract and, and you just not like you're allowed to discount it down. So I would say if Baker ends up being Alex Smith, that's actually a success. I'm serious. And I know most people will be like, that'd be a huge disappointment. I think it's a success. I think people in Cleveland are going to tell you that that's that's too low. But I think most people around the league would say, yeah, I don't know, because you're right. He's, he's he's not even a top half quarterback. I don't even think he's kind of close he's, to that right now. He's Cleveland right now is 15th and third down percent conversion again a month in. Um, they were eighth last year. He was 10th in QBR last season. You know, QBR does a decent job with it. He's 26th. So we'll see. We'll see how the rest of the year goes. I know that's not what Browns fans want because I would argue that, yes, Alex Smith got teams in the playoffs. He also got benched twice, um, you know, by guys like, you know, you don't but if, draft. If Cleveland could upgrade, they would upgrade. But, you know what I mean? Like, it's the same way for Alex Smith. It, Alex Smith got upgraded because they had Patrick Holmes and Colin Kaepernick, and there were clearly better quarterback options available. If Cleveland had that in the building, they would upgrade. But that they're, they're kind of stuck with him right now, and he's the best they could do. No, but they're probably going to pay him. And then they're not going to take a guy in the first round immediately. And that's what happened to Alex Smith. So I, I would say success because okay. if you're Cleveland, you know, it's not about we need a top five guy. Like if Baker's good enough to be the starter for 10 years, that might be the best you can do with him. But I still think it's a little early this season to start looking at these numbers and write them off. But it just hasn't yeah. been good. It hasn't been good, at least for this year. All right. Next one. What if Tua Tagovailoa had Jay Cutler's career? That was his peak. 
are you serious? I take it right now. <laughs> okay. okay. And I was not the biggest Cutler guy when he was in Chicago. Um, towards the end, I think I started to become more of a Cutler guy as it got worse because I just go, this guy's getting destroyed back there. Destroyed. And we can talk about, oh, he had a million different coordinators. Usually, the reason you have a million different coordinators is the quarterback's not working out. So I went from believing in Cutler to going, there's just too many mistakes, to then having sympathy for him because I thought he was going to die in a game. Um, Tua's started 11 of 20 games for Miami. We still don't have enough. The early returns are not good. We can chalk up last season to COVID and everything. Okay, that's fine. Like, I'll let you use it as an excuse. He got knocked out real early in the second game here. If he could be Cutler, that's a win because the start of the Tua story is a really bad few chapters. It's not great. Uh, that was actually probably one of the hardest ones that I to nail down a comparison for because I love that it, one. it doesn't look good. But and I, and people don't like Cutler, but Cutler was actually okay. I, he was an okay. I mean, you know, he He's put up okay. numbers, and both of them are kind of flashy. I mean, these aren't like I'm not trying to do comps as far as like how they play, like exactly their style of play. It's more of like where they were in the league and their standing as far as like you know, no, you know tiers of where they are in the league. Um, but I I'm with you. I think that would be a success too. Um, next one. This is my favorite one, and this is the one that made me think of this entire segment. Mac Jones, Kirk Cousins. I swear, I think you're picking every guy. I think you're messing with me more on this than anything else. If Mac Jones is Kirk Cousins, that's a win. 100%. It's a win. Okay, because what am I? My default is 50% of the first rounders suck. All right. Like all these guys that we're talking about, these last, these last, half of them are going to be on a different team and then never start for anyone else, all right? Unless we get really, really lucky. Right? The numbers don't always have to work out that way, but that's the way they do work out. As much as I don't like Kirk Cousins and he limits you in some of those moments, you know, the third and seven and longer, and I, I've got to go ahead and look it up because I was looking up Lamar's stuff. His numbers on that are terrible on pass attempts. I think he's two for 20 on third, seven and more, um, but it hasn't really mattered because they're winning games and they could be undefeated. So when I look at, Cousins numbers, we all know how I feel about him on, you know, the short of the sticks. I wish somebody would keep track of short of the sticks on third and fourth down, short of the sticks and a guy that you're throwing to that has two defenders on him. Like not, hey, short of the sticks, make a move and and it's yak here. It's short of the sticks and you have no chance, but here's the ball. Um, Carr had a couple of those on Monday night too. Kirk Cousins is still good enough if you're if you're Mac Jones, that works out. Now, every New England fan is going to say, absolutely not. I'm totally wrong about this because your standard, again, you had the girlfriend in Mallorca, all right? Not the meth addict. No offense, respectfully. All right, next one. Daniel Jones, Ryan Fitzpatrick. Oh, man. <laughs> Three weeks ago, I would have said, yeah, great. Uh, but who is Ryan Fitzpatrick? He is somebody that puts up numbers certain weeks because no one gives less, less of a fuck about a challenged completion. Like, that's the Ryan Fitzpatrick story. Like, that's why he has these massive peaks and valleys throughout one season because he's just going to get out there and sling it. Like, he doesn't care. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. And everybody moves on from him. Like, if, if five teams have moved on from you, that tells me in the building when they're breaking down the film, they're like, we have to do better than this. Now, having said all that, I yeah, you know what? As, as much as I may be down on Daniel Jones and I'm having an open mind over these last few weeks, uh, that's not going to be good enough for Daniel Jones, even though he may end up being the kind of guy that people bring in and be like, oh, we can fix him. 
you know, the Darnold thing alone may open up the door for more and more people going, you know, and that's kind of the Tannehill thing. Who knows what happens with Darnold the rest of the year, but it's just kind of weird. It's like, hey, we have a guy in the building, but we took him high and he hasn't been good for three or four years, but we don't want to be embarrassed, so we'll just keep him around. I don't know if that's how the Daniel Jones thing will break out. Just the last three weeks alone should make everybody feel better, but I think you have to be better than a journeyman guy that comes in when you have injury problems, basically, is who Fitzpatrick is. What if I bumped it up another level? What if I said Teddy Bridgewater? I'm actually not quite sure how different Teddy Bridgewater and Fitzpatrick are. Uh, you know, I, I think Teddy goes between underrated and overrated every month uh, for me because there's some numbers you dig in and you're like, Teddy, that's great. I actually think that Teddy and Fitzpatrick are very similar as far as, you know, when you have Daniel Jones, even if he ends up being the 20th best quarterback, let's say that, 20th best, all right? That's not what you're hoping for if you're a Giants fan. The problem with being the 20th best and then getting that second contract is you go, we can do better than 20th best. Like, you always want to upgrade mm-hmm. that, even if it's better than a yeah, third of the league. Yeah, you should just go to the draft at that point. Like, what's the point <laughs> yeah. of having that guy? I'd rather be bad, to be honest with you. I'd rather be bad and try to get another bite at the apple at the draft. Um, that's that's so why I'm you're a hinky you. guy. Yeah, you're a hinky oh, guy. 100%. You'd be like, Trust the process. Play, Let's go. You bring in Peyton Hillis to play quarterback and be like, what are you talking about? What's the, problem? the thing with Daniel Jones, though, is I could see him starting for like half a dozen teams, but he's never going to be the guy. He's always just a guy for teams that don't have quarterbacks. All right. Next one. Uh, Justin Fields. Ryan Tannehill. It's so early on fields. I mean, we're talking about two games here. Um, Tannehill's a weird one because the numbers are massive. Nobody would ever confuse him with a top five quarterback. It hasn't been great this year. Whatever. I'm, I'm not going to start worrying about it. Uh, the first week of October. That's not enough. That's not enough. So that would be... Did you have any other ones for fields? I feel like this one's out too obvious, but Cam Newton. All right, the the exercise, remember, isn't, hey, do you get to a Super Bowl and he wins MVP? It's, does he have Cam Newton's career? Cam's career is complicated. It's a really peak outlier year surrounded by a lot of other years where I just don't think he was as good as people made him out to be because physically we were so impressed with him. Fields being Cam Newton, the passer and decision maker and the lack of adjustments and reads at the line, and Cam now has admitted this stuff that most of us saw for a long time, that there were real limitations with him running your offense. That's, I'd rather be Tannehill, even though I'm not like the biggest Tannehill guy, than Cam. And I, I think most, again, I, I feel like this entire exercise was setting myself up to be disagreed with by the majority. It's too early on him. So I, I got two left. Let's do this. Let's do these quick. Justin Herbert. Now this one, everybody's really high on Justin Herbert. So maybe mine is too low here. What a, what if he has Matt Stafford's career? The Stafford thing, I, I think we're going to learn this year, and we're seeing now with the McVay partnership, um, that the lack of the team success for Stafford had much more to do with Detroit franchise than it did Stafford. It just did. So the ability to play the position, the numbers are going to be a little skewed because we're still going to be talking about the next era here that Herbert's in, and that's why it was tougher to go through and look at some of these guys. But the, her- the the hope for Herbert is that he could be in the conversation as best quarterback in the NFL. And talent-wise, I think we thought of that at Stafford. But if Stafford were truly that, then I think he would have carried that franchise a little bit more. So I'd say that's a disappointment based on projections because Herbert is, is screaming towards Tier 1, which he might already be in right now. And even if the biggest Stafford fan was on the podcast, when, I, when you compare him to his contemporaries, 
even if you were the most positive ever on Stafford, you weren't sitting there calling him Drew Brees or Russell Wilson or Tom Brady or Aaron Rodgers. So I think that's below the expectations or what you should hope for for Herbert. Let me bump it up then really quickly. Andrew Luck. Um, better. He has to be better. Because Luck, Luck got a... I'm a huge Andrew Luck fan. He carried a team as a rookie like few rookies have ever done considering what was around him. Um, part of his retiring was getting his ass kicked because they did such a bad job around him. But he did because he was getting his ass kicked, get a little turnover happy. So um, I think Herbert... Herbert, the way this is starting off, the hope is that he's going to be better than both of those guys. Okay. So, yeah. Last one. Joe Burrow, Carson Palmer, pre-knee injury. A little Bengals action for you. I like it. If, if Burrow ends up being pre-knee injury Carson Palmer, that's a win. But, again, I think people will say, oh, that's not enough. He was <laughs> like, third-best no, quarterback in the league before yeah, the injury. Like, no, that's... Prime Carson Palmer was a really, really good quarterback. All right, I like that. Hit us up and we won't read your tweets. This episode is supported by State Farm. So look, a little rock hit your dude's windshield on the highway. And at first you're like, what is that? I'm like, oh, it's just a little mark. Nope. Now by the end of the ride, it's a big crack. And it'd been a while. So I check out the State Farm app. I go, hey, this is what happened. And the funny thing is, is I was like, do I want to go app first or do I call old school guy, probably should call. It's like, let's check out the app. Not only did it take a minute to get done, they set up the glass replacement. They told me the estimate ahead of time, said, you want to go ahead with it? And I was like, now I understand it's all in front of me, all done. I didn't even have to talk to anybody. That's how efficient the insurance game has become. But really, the only words you need to remember are, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. State Farm has options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can Talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need. Have coverage options to protect the things you value most. File a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, just like I did. And even reach a real person when you need to talk to somebody. The app was so good, I didn't even need to do that. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Learn more at statefarm.com. Jonathan Vilma, Fox Sports, joins us. Okay, you had the Giants win at New Orleans, uh, one of your old stomps there. In the 504. Uh, that game was uh, not what I expected. It was at least early on. So give us your perspective. You called that Giants come back, win that thing in overtime. Yeah, the the first thing obvious is the Saints didn't finish. Uh, but I give a lot of credit to the Giants. They played very clean football. Uh, one turnover at the end of the half for Daniel Jones. Other than that, he literally carved up that Saints secondary. Um, and he did it with, you know, names that weren't expected in you know, Kadarius Tony. you look at Darius Slayton being out, Sterling Shepard being out, but Kenny Galladay stepped up as well. And then you had Colin Johnson stepping up. So, you know, this is a team that all of a sudden people are saying, well, why don't you open up the offense? Why don't you open up the offense? Jason Garrett did a phenomenal job of mixing in the run. First, he had the, those guys out on the perimeter, Kadarius Tony giving them, you know, wide receiver screens. And then all of a sudden he started going over the top and he started lighting up the secondary for the Saints. So, you know, I'd say offensively, it was very encouraging to see what the wide receivers are able to do and how they were able to produce. It was extremely encouraging to see Daniel Jones in full control mastery of that offense. I didn't say mastery of the defense. 
mastery of his offense. He knows exactly where the guys are, where they're supposed to be. He was checking in and out. Uh, so that's very encouraging. And then you look at Saquon Barkley. Now he's starting to come alive again. And it took a few games, as expected, to finally have his mental matchup with his physical. And now he's not thinking about, oh, how much pressure can I put on my knee? He's just going. And he looked really, really good. So this is a team, a Giants team, that they're not good enough to have a bunch of errors and win, but they are good enough to play really clean football and win games. Yeah, the Daniel Jones thing, you know, we touched on it earlier this week, and I've I've not been a fan. Uh, The numbers would back it up. But he's had some moments this year. He's been clean with the turnovers um, since the opening week. Uh, He has a really weird home road split where it seems like he's a completely different guy on the road. And I think the question is, you go into this year with Jones, is that you're hoping at the end of the year to have an answer to, can this guy actually be like a starter and you know, I'm not talking about being a top 10 quarterback, but do we have somebody here with this investment? Do we get this to a second contract? It's still kind of early. I'm, I'm obviously still hesitant. I think the fact that there's any hope is just a positive alone. Where are you at with him as far as like actually being a guy for the Giants in the future? You know, Ryan, I was uh, very down on him when he was turning the ball over. And that comes from, from playing. It was always whoever turns the ball over the most more than likely he's going to lose the game. And so we were of the mindset when I played with the Saints, don't beat yourselves. Don't turn the ball over. Don't have these uh, horrible penalties, uh, unforced errors. And Daniel Jones, he was literally a turnover waiting to happen. He was a turnover machine. And it was like, if I had played against this guy, we we wouldn't do anything different. We just wait for him to throw us one, right? He reminded me of Jay Cutler when Jay Cutler would just, literally hands you interception. It was like, you get an interception, you get an interception, you get an interception, right? And then, of course, he finds himself out of the league. So I I thought he was going down that path. And because he has really been, or whether it's him or the coaching staff or both, it has to be a combination, uh, they have really had him protecting the football. And because he can protect the football now and he doesn't turn the football over, he gives them a chance. That, that's first and foremost. He gives them a chance. Now, is he a second contract quarterback? Well, let's put a couple of these games together. And I'm not saying he has to throw for 400 yards every time. You know, we're not looking for, you know, Kyle, Kyler Murray type player. What we're looking for is someone that they're going to stuff the, the box with the run game and stop Sa- Saquon. So we're going to go over the top and we're going to get you out of that defense. And until you do that, we have a quarterback that's good enough to hurt you. And I think he's evolving to that. I really do. Like watching, I was fortunate to cover the last two games of the Giants. He played a good Atlanta Falcons defense. They had just been roasted by Tampa Bay. You knew they were coming in to play hard. Whether they were going to play good football or not, they were going to come and play hard. And he did well against them. Second week, goes against the Saints. Good defense. You're talking about Marshawn Lattimore, Malcolm Jenkins, Demario Davis. These are all pro bowlers. Cameron Jordan, all pro bowlers on that Saints defense. And he lit them up. So I think he has something. Let's let's see the consistency now. Let's see if that if that comes to fruition. Um, I think I'd push back on that Atlanta defense a little bit there, though. In what way? That they're not a good defense? No, they're I, I think they suck on defense. Okay. Well, that may be true. That may be true. But what I know is when you get embarrassed, forget as a player, just as a man, right? You get embarrassed, 
for 48 points that, that the Bucks rolled on them. Everyone's talking about how terrible you are. You know the next week, whether you're good or not, just as a man, you're going to come back and you're going to play. You're going to play hard. So I knew going into that Giants game, you, you say they suck. I will be more politically correct that they need – they have areas to improve upon, right? Okay, <laughs> all right, yeah. Say. Look, you I'll can't say, say on the broadcast they suck. You got production <laughs> meetings with these guys. I, right, I get exactly. the whole deal. They I would areas say to improve upon. Right. Yeah, I don't know. But I, I didn't know I they were going to play hard. Yeah. Okay. All right. I let, I one last thing on this because you know you are close to the Saints. I imagine it's a little different for you when you're back in the building and, and the access you have. The yeah. Week One win against Green Bay is a fluke. Uh, I'm not saying the Saints aren't good because I still do like their defense, but they're they're throwing it less than every other team in the league. If you look at your pass run splits and percentage, they're they're last by a pretty good chunk. What is Peyton doing with an offense here where it looked like week one, Sheamus is going to be going to the Pro Bowl, and now we're like, oh, this is the part that's a little frustrating and the way that they're just deciding that they, they want to be a run-first team, which is not what we see in the league. Yeah, they, he's buying time. You're Sean Peyton. Let's look at who is Jameis Winston throwing the ball to. And before we even go there, let's look at Jameis Winston in the past when he has thrown the ball too many times. More than likely, bad things start to happen. So do you want a guy, if, if you're a real coach, Sean Payne's a real coach. I have a lot of respect for him. Do you want to put a guy in a position to fail, which is what happened with the Bucks when he was throwing the ball 40 times a game? He would give you a 300-yard performance. But it, could, it would either be three TDs or three interceptions with that 300-yard performance. So if I'm Sean, which I respect a lot, I'm not going to put this guy in a position to throw the ball 40 times a game and then lose because he's turned the ball over three, three interceptions, whatever it is. One, that that's cost the team. Two, that breaks his confidence. You need this guy to have his confidence to be in a leadership position and lead this team. So you have... One of the best players in Alvin Kamara. Love, love watching him. You have three, four possibly pro bowlers up front on the offensive line. I know a couple of them are injured. Then you got Mike Thomas on the outside who whenever he gets healthy, he'll be a force. So right now he's buying time. Wait for his offensive lineman to get healthy. Wait for Mike Thomas to get back. The defense we know is stellar. They had a bad day. They had a bad day. Everyone, it happens. More times than not, they play really good defense. So just... Patience, man. That, that's the way I look at it. Just be patient. And the, the good thing is that the division, no one's running away with it. You know, you're only, what, a couple games out. Maybe, uh, you know, you can easily get that back midseason. You go on a winning streak. Let's talk Chargers. Uh, nice win where they look like the dominant team. And Raiders get back into it. Then Herbert just clamps it down. We know defensively, if they're healthy, they're really good. They never seem to be because you know they they have high level defensive players. We know they've invested in the offensive line, which was an issue. Um, I I know Mike Williams isn't going to be anybody's like top receiver, but I think that he just has moments. Even if it's you know, look, I'm not saying he's Keevan Keenan Allen, but I like their weapons. And then you add in Herbert, who. I think you see, hey, these are the things that are kind of hard to figure out how it's going to work on Sundays, and in this case, Monday, when it's like, we need you to lock that safety and make a throw. We, we need you to, to answer, you know, convert third downs in a way that Baker isn't, say, right now for, for Cleveland. If I say the Chargers are coming out of the AFC, how much pushback do you have to that kind of statement? Well, come, when you say coming out of the AFC, as in AFC. Super Bowl. Wow. 
I'm not ah. sure I'm there yet. I mean, I really don't like doing that against the Chiefs, even though their defense is worse than Atlanta's, arguably. But uh, <laughs> you, you're on a roll today, Ryan. <laughs> yeah, we they gave up 32 that? to Philly, man. I mean, come on. Uh, I get. I'm I'm just simply asking it in kind of an open ended thing. I'm not. I wouldn't say after a month. Oh, uh, they're coming a, out. You get a lot of pushback because there's a Buffalo team and there's a Bills Mafia that is just chopping at the bits to get back to the playoffs and show what they really are and who they really are. You you can't overlook Buffalo. They, they I'm look, not. I don't I don't care the competition. The way that they dominate is just freaking phenomenal. These are NFL players, right? This is best of the best. I don't care if Houston has, you know, one double-A players. It's the best of the best one double-A players that they have playing, and Buffalo is just dominating. They dominated the Dolphins the same way. Like, that. that's a really good team, man. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not being dismissive of Buffalo at all. You know, and Baltimore sitting there at 3-1, and one, and I don't know if anybody realizes that Cincinnati's 3-1 and one through all this. Uh, I just... Taking yeah. the temperature early October for saying, what if what if I'm telling you the Chargers are coming out of the AFC? I'm not even look, I'm still scared to death of the Chiefs. I don't care what you know, almost we saw last yeah, year they were a bad I, defensive you, you team know, that didn't matter. The more I think about it, Ryan, I would give you more and more pushback. Like the game is fresh on my mind yesterday, and they look good, they look dominant. And then then I started thinking about some of the other teams across the AFC, and I'm like, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Wait a minute. I, I give you more pushback, man. That there, there are too many good teams to just say that they would come out. You know what? I would make the argument they they only go in as a wild card, so they're going to be on the road if they're going to come out the AFC. Chiefs are still going to win that division, and they're going to be a wild card. Hey, so are you seeing enough? Because we did this thing on Monday that I think is always really important. You know, you look at some of the statistics. And you'll be like, oh, my God, Like Carolina came to that Dallas game is the best statistical defense in the league. I don't think yeah. any of us believe that. Buffalo's numbers now after the new week has been calculated. Yep. Some of the numbers that they have defensively as a team, like they are so far and away. Like they're like 30 points better in some metrics than the number two defense, which might be the Saints. Um, but then when you look at Buffalo's schedule and you say, OK, wait a minute, they played the Steelers who got seven in that game on a special teams on top of everything else, the Dolphins in a Tua game, where I think that's the one he got knocked out, Washington, and then the Texans. Uh, yep. They are putting it on teams, but can you see enough from them where you go, I don't care that it's the schedule, the fact that they are dominating the way they are defensively, which was a question mark off of last year that you feel better about it? Yeah, I do feel better about it. Uh, that that was the point I was making, Ryan, that you, the the okay, the competition isn't good. The way that they're kicking their ass though like that that's what it is like i i i have to r remind anyone that's listening the nfl is the best of the best of the best football players in the world so when buffalo comes into town and beats the snot out of you 40 to nothing i don't care what team the texans put out there i know for a fact it's the best of the best of the best in the world right now and they are smacking them so when they beat teams like that resounding victories that tells me one they're really good on a negative are they peaking too soon Oof, that that would be my only concern are you peaking too soon or possibly a little overconfident well time will tell 
Yeah, the Texans are a good example of like, did they come out of the tunnel going, hey, we got a chance. They beat Jacksonville and we didn't move. We knew Jacksonville was going to be terrible. They're competitive with the Browns and then they get smoked by Carolina and the 40 nothing of the Bills. And I'm like, this isn't a Houston Texans segment, Jonathan, but it's it's almost like, wait, should we think that much less of the Jags potentially? And should we reevaluate <laughs> who the Browns are? But defensively, what the Browns did in that game against, did you get to see any of the Minnesota stuff? Did you see any of the Miles no. Garrett stuff? Because no. all right, because there's some Miles Garrett film that exists where you think it's fake. Remember Christian McCaffrey when his agent did the shuttle video, and then we realized the bottom line on ESPN was going as fast as like a cartoon. Yeah, like you guys, you guys sped this up a little bit. Not that McCaffrey's <laughs> not really fast and quick and all that kind of stuff, but Garrett. I don't know how long the list is, other than Aaron Donald and maybe even Ramsey. How many guys defensively are ahead of Garrett? I think that's it. You you nailed it. Ramsey, Donald, Bosa. No, no. Go Garrett. I go Garrett. Garrett. I I like Bosa. I like both Bosas actually, but Garrett. He's dominant in the run and the pass. He he's just a force, a force to be reckoned with. All right. You know what? Because I mentioned the Jags, I have to ask you about the Urban Meyer situation. We saw him uh, in a video this week. Sorry, man. Um, <laughs> there was there's a girl basically grinding on his thigh. He said people were asking him to come out to dance floor. His apology was kind of weird. Yeah. Um, er- and, everything you know, about him so far has been weird. But right. go ahead. Go right. Ahead. Okay. So then we have yeah. the, the news today that was being reevaluated. You knew he wasn't going to get fired for cause and then he wasn't going to get paid. It's kind of like how that world works. Like that wasn't going to happen. Um, but now all the stuff creeping out of the locker room is no one has any respect for him. And they're all laughing. I, I don't think I've seen some other pro players, former players say we always at least had respect for our coaches. I don't believe that for a second. Uh, how would you handle this if you were on the Jags right now? Uh, on the Jags is what? Player, front office, player. Owner? Let's we go player first. You're a player, you're coach, you're 0-4. He's, you know, he's legendary college guy. I know how you NFL guys can be protective and think no one could ever figure it out on Sundays. And look, there's plenty of evidence that guys haven't figured it out. Yeah, there's, I'm just there's saying, a lot of truth right. to that, right? No, no doubt. And and, yeah. and there's evidence that you're right about it too. I just don't think it's impossible for a guy to go ahead and do it. So my question would be like, how would you guys be give me the real way you guys in the locker room would be talking about your coach who's married? We saw a video of a girl grinding on him, and he has to apologize to all of you, and you're also 0-4 on top of everything else. All right, so it, it, I'm going to layer it, right? If I am a bubble player, <laughs> I'm not saying shit. <laughs> all right. I am going to get up early. I'm going to get my ass to work, and I'm going to practice my butt off and make sure that I'm still on this team come the following Monday. So I'm not saying anything. If I am paid and I am uh, already checked out, 0-4 already checked out, I mean, I'm cracking jokes all day long, right? Like that that's what we do in the locker room, crack jokes. That's frankly what I miss the most about playing, cracking all the jokes, right? Coaches, everybody, er- everyone's lives, everyone's lives. Now, if I am a leader and a captain and i'm really trying to write this ship i'm gonna have maybe one big joke in front of everybody and urban's just gonna have to laugh it off and then we got to move on because at the end of it all i would be pissed that i'm on four and i can't stand it and we need to figure out how to win and stop talking about my coach because players play 
All right, really good answer. Really good that's answer good is the first part. That's right. as honest as it gets, right? As honest as it gets. Because I would, I would say, if this is the worst thing that Urban has done as far as like a coach and whatever his family thing, like I still think it's awkward that reporters could be like, "Hey, how did you handle this with your family?" Like that's a weird question. And Look, if Ryan, I'm Urban, I think it was staged. Like if you want to know the truth, I think oh it was yeah, staged. go I ahead, conspiracy. Dude, so okay, just tell me this: How is it that? You are USC, they come calling, and we know you've entertained those calls. You are struggling right now from all reports to forget win a game. Just rally your team, right? And that's that's the first thing as a coach. You can't you don't have these guys motivated, not rally. So what do you do to get out of there? You make yourself look like you're expendable. Right. And you say, all right, we're on four. And then you start looking at, wait, why is Urban Meyer at a bar and not going back with his team to try and get this figured out? Hmm. OK, then it's like, all right, all these random girls just so happen to come up to Urban Meyer like he's freaking Brad Pitt or Leonardo DiCaprio. Like, let's let's just figure this out for a second. Why are all these women coming up to him? And then how do you have all these awesome angles of three, four different angles of him grinding up on a girl, you know, messing with her butt, whatever else was going on. I'm just like, you know, there's a lot going on for just a simple guy at a bar for this not to be staged. And it backfired. They didn't fire him. Uh, I should say backfired, no pun intended, but uh, they didn't fire him. And I, I just think that more nonsense like this is going to come out until he gets fired. I honestly believe. I think this was staged all the way. And look at the way he exited Florida. Look at the way he exited Ohio State. All of these things where, oh, I'm so, I'm so ill. I got to leave Florida. Boom. Ohio State, here I come. Oh, I, I just I can't do it anymore. Ohio State. Okay. Uh, you know, a little cushiony job at Fox, and then now all of a sudden, boom, I'm over here at the NFL. You know, just his his resume tells me that that thing was staged. Wow. I did not expect this. So it sounds like, Vilma, you're prepping us since it didn't work for an Urban Meyer sex tape. Is that what you're saying? Ill, Gross. I would never prep anybody for anything that disgusting. <laughs> Uh, well, okay. The fact that he didn't get on the plane and go back with the team—that is fairly unheard of. I mean, that's I've kind of never the heard of that. Never heard of that. I've never heard of a head coach going back. As a matter of fact, I'll give you examples of Sean Payton. He would come back with the team, and then if he had to fly out, he would fly out quietly. No one knew. Do what he needed to do, and then come back. You don't just oh oh you guys go. And I'm going to stay right here. And oh, by the way, I'm going to be at the bar. Come on. Come on. No, 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 no. Just to give a little bit more context to it, though, it was Urban's restaurant in Columbus. So I, I don't care if you're 98. If you're a guy who won a national title at Ohio State and you're at a bar, people are going to come up to you and girls are going to come up to you. I mean, it's just the way it works. I've, I've seen stuff in the South where I was like, what? And like, now oh, he returned a touchdown against Ole Miss in 1962. And I was like, Jesus. All right. Okay. Um, <laughs> I'd also add this, that of all the things I've heard head coaches doing that I would say would be frowned upon in a family therapy session, this isn't even close to being the worst. And no. you guys as athletes all know that. You know what your coach's deal is. 
or, you know, we know who's real and who's who's fake. And if it's the way Urban talks to players, that's the bigger problem that it's 0-4, that he doesn't have a winning track record in the NFL. Those are the issues. Those are the reasons why a locker room checks out on you, not because they saw you having a girl dance on you. And that's, I think, the emphasis of the story when it's really about those other things. 1,000%. That's why I said it was staged, because the only person that's going to care is the owner, right? And the optics, and how does it look? And so the only person that's going to be like, really frowning on Urban Meyer about what he did is going to be the guy that has the ability to hire or fire him. That's why it had to be staged. And then, oh, by the way, you said it's his bar. He owns it. If I own a bar in Columbus, Ohio, where everyone knows who I am. am your, I really bar, your bar would do awful in Columbus. If it was Jonathan Vilma's Pine House, it wouldn't do well. I'm, sh- I'm sure it would. I'm sure it would be burned down within hours. But if I'm him, of all the places to be at my own bar restaurant, am I really going to be in the most visible spot where everyone can see me grinding with a girl? Come on. No, stop it. Stop it. I know there's a back room somewhere where he can do whatever he wants and no one's going to say anything. Yeah, but, you know, dry storage. I don't know. I don't know if that makes sense. And and again, he, the grinding part will probably be both. It would seem like a, a, a very lukewarm participant in a lap dance. But anyway, everybody's seen the video now at this point. Okay. Uh, what other NFL stuff do we need to get to? Because mm. I I want you to kind of steer it because I don't know every tape that you've been able to break down. Is there something you've seen on tape now that we haven't touched on that you think is an important thing for us to think about? Like that seed that gets planted in your head. You used to do this all the time with us in college at ESPN. We'd be like, yeah. you know what? I'm seeing something that's happening right now. It may mean something. It may mean nothing, but I'm seeing it. Is there anything like that? You know, for 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 good stuff, I'm seeing a real change in the landscape of the NFL. And I'm watching the NFC West, the AFC West. They are by far the two most dominant divisions in football right now. Um, and what I'm seeing, the way that they play, if you look at the players that they have, they're all fast as hell. It's one. Two, very mobile at the quarterback positions. And, and if not mobile like Kyler Murray mobile, they're, they're elusive in the pocket. Um, I, I love the fact that each of those teams, I've talked to McVay, I've talked to Pete Carroll. <clears throat> they are always player first. It's not about their scheme. It's about their players. And I think there's a lot to be taken from young and old coaches. Pete Carroll's old as hell. Sean McVay's young as hell. The understanding what makes a team go and makes a team click. And they are, I mean, they are doing a phenomenal job out West. And I say that because you have coaches uh, across the, the landscape that they think it's about scheme. And they need to stop that because it's not about their scheme. They're not reinventing the wheel. It's about the players. Uh, that's that's what I've seen so far from a high level. Uh, you give me a couple of weeks, I'll start telling you about some players that they're gonna be they're gonna be pro bowlers, all pro that we don't really talk about. Early on in your career with the Jets, uh, you you went through some QBs there, and I'm looking at the first four years. You had Pennington, then he was out. 
Brooks Bollinger, Testa Verde, then Chad came back, and then it was Chad and Kellen Clemens. And I know Chad always had a hard time staying healthy. Yep. It's not the same as what's going on with Fields in Chicago, but it's it's that part of of the the inside of this world that I, that I always want to learn more about. What goes on? Because I, I, let me just ask it this way. Did you feel like in all those years that it's three of those four where you were kind of going back and forth? And again, some of it was injury determined, but where you felt like the staff was going with the right guy or going with the wrong guy? Is there a good story in there that's either we we understood why the coach was making the decision or in this case, something comparable to what we have with Nagy? Where we were like, why do you keep doing this with the field storyline? No, it, they, they were doing the right thing. As much as I would want to go against Mangini um, at that time, you know, Chad was the on the field who he played or started. It made sense. What I didn't like was <clears throat> Mangini at times. He would go out of his way to be a jerk or and, and when it wasn't necessary. So, for example, you lose a game. All right. We lost a game and we all know it's because Chad's arm was. It, it just wasn't there yet, right? And he had, let's, I'm just throwing it out there, make an example. Let's say he had like 200 yards passing and he just couldn't throw the out route or something like that. We all know what the issue is. We we know what the big reason is why we lost. He's not the only reason. Defensively, we did some things and messed up. But there's no point now in coming back on a, a Wednesday or a Monday or a Wednesday meeting and in the team meeting showing all the throws that Chad didn't make. Like, dude, what are you doing? So like stuff like that, I didn't agree with at all. And I can equate it. I'm saying that because I can equate it to Nagy in, a, in the sense that I could, I could definitely see him doing that with the quarterback, these leadership positions where it's like, dude, we don't need this right now. We need to figure out how to win the next game. We don't need you to point out the obvious of what's going on. And to your point, why are you doing it? Like, what, what? We don't get it. Doesn't make sense. Yeah, that's worse than a lap dance. I think. Hundred percent. Hundred percent. When when everybody's in the building going like what? Like I had an open mind on the Nagy Fields thing only for the sake of like what if Fields actually isn't ready? I know no one likes Nagy. Nagy's done nothing to get the benefit of the doubt. But what if he's actually right and like, hey, we just don't think he's that ready? And then there was the first game was a disaster for a million different reasons. But then again, yes, it was Detroit, but. Bill Lazor calls a better game, and then Nagy was like insufferable, like couldn't actually give him credit. Like, who cares about the coaching press conference? Who gets credit thing? Know. Most guys give credit away, like stuff they don't even care about in those moments. And Nagy yeah. actually still couldn't do it in an insignificant moment. Yeah, I, I, I think it's uh, insecurity, to be quite honest. Right, you you start to, and I don't want to put words in his mouth, but I know that you may feel like you're losing your value as a head coach, right? And if if that's the scenario, that kind of tells you what position he may be in right now with the team and with the organization. Now, again, I don't know, uh, but that that's the only time you do stuff like that. It's just really weird, really strange. Very, and you're right, though. The instinct is survival, and he's going, I'm probably going to get fired anyway, so why am I going to advertise that this guy's way better at calling plays than I am? But it just, no one believes you, and it looks actually, ends up looking even worse, even though you're in survival mode. Uh, I had a follow-up on man, Genie, there. Did you end up getting to like him later on? Because I didn't like him when I didn't know him, and once I got to know him, 
I actually loved the guy. So, you know, what's interesting, Mangini, to this day, I thought was one of the smartest coaches I had. No joke. What, where Mangini went wrong was he tried to be like Bill Belichick instead of trying to be like Eric Mangini. And players, we see through that. We're with you 16 hours a day, every day during the season. Be you. And if you, if you can't be you, then we can't. That's where you start losing respect for guys and checking out because you can't be you. How do you expect us to be real with you? And that was really my only issue with Mangini was that he just wasn't, he wasn't real, man. Just keep it, keep it 100 all the time. We can respect that. Uh, but as far as a person, I thought he was a good person um, outside of, uh, you know, football, uh, but X's and O's, I thought he was super smart. He had one of the best defensive calls against Tom Brady. Uh, in 2006, we went up there on the road, beat them in Foxborough. And I'll never forget that he had this defense design. It was the first time I saw Tom Brady look at a defense and not know what it was and where to go with the football. So we ended up winning that What'd game. What'd you do? What'd you it do was, that was, was so special? It was basically, so Mangino was great at situational football. And it was a point in the game where there was, I believe, let's call it 20 some seconds left and they needed to get in the field goal range to kick a field goal to tire to win or whatever it was. And we had a defense where instead of putting anybody in the middle of the field, we put everybody on the sideline. We put everybody like within three yards of the sideline stacked at every level. So one person was about three yards from the sideline. The next person was about eight yards. The next person was about 15 yards. And we did on both sides of the field. And then we had one middle field safety just in case, you know, they, they throw something in the middle. And so I'll never forget Brady comes out. He looks, he knows he needs to throw to the sideline to stop the clock. And he sees all of us already standing there. And he's just like, what the hell is this? And so he, he couldn't check. He just looked, he hikes the ball and just stood like a statue, had nowhere to go with the football. That was the first and only time I ever ran that defense in my whole career against the best of all time. And that was the first time I ever heard a coach even implement that, that defense, and then let alone run it, actually run it. It was phenomenal, absolutely phenomenal. So extremely smart guy. Had a lot of respect for him, just not when it came to him being himself. Yeah, and he admitted as much, too. And I'm glad I got to know him because when I saw him, I was still living in Boston at the time when I was like, yeah. what the hell is he doing with these pressers? And then I had a friend who grew up with him was like, you know, honestly, he's he's a great guy. You'd like him. And I was like, you're going to be kidding me. And they were like, he thinks he kind of has to do it this way because that's the way he learned it. But you can't be Bill unless you're Bill. You just can't. Um, right. On a, in a weird way, personality-wise, I don't know I don't know why you would want to other than the fact that it's work. So um, that's, that's cool. I always like checking in with you on that stuff. Hey, who do you have this week for Fox? I have a good one, man. I got Packers at Bengals. Okay. All right. One yeah. o'clock Eastern, Vilma on the call uh, every week. So you can check them out, Fox on NFL. All right, we'll talk to you again soon, man. Thank you. All right, bro. Have a good one, Ryan. This episode is brought to you by Modelo. Modelo knows it's not about whether you win or lose. It's about cheering louder, traveling further. It's about showing up no matter what because you are a fighter and Modelo is your reward. An ice-cold reward. Rich golden lager with a crisp, refreshing taste. Modelo, the mark of a fighter. 
Shop delivery or pickup options near you at ordermodello.com. Drink responsibly. Beer imported by Crown Imports, Chicago, Illinois. We work as a company that went from running desks to a $47 billion valuation in a record amount of time. And that's not how the story ended. The book is The Cult of We, Elliot Brown, and Marie Farrell, who join us now. Uh, Elliot with Wall Street Journal. Maureen is now with The New York Times, so congratulations. And we're going to talk about this book that blew me away, couldn't put it down, uh, The Cult of We. All right, so let's start here. Um, who was Adam? Who was Adam Newman, the founder of WeWork? Who, what's, what's the backstory so that we understand the rest of the timeline? Adam Newman is... Uh was an entrepreneur. He immigrated from Israel um, back right around 2001. Uh, he started a few businesses. One of them was um, making knee pa- baby clothes with knee pads on them. It was a company called Crawlers. He dropped out of Baruch College while studying to go really all in on this Crawlers business. <laughs> he had a few other failed ventures and eventually uh, landed on this idea for WeWork with, uh, he teamed up with an architect um, and they created this business that was essentially subleasing office space and uh, renting it out. He's a completely uh, charismatic, his long, dark black hair, he's very tall, um, completely wild and crazy, I think in many ways, but uh, immediately captivating as an entrepreneur the, the minute you meet him, which led him uh, to build this company and get money from billions and billions from people around the world. Yeah, I think he's he's one of the world's best salesmen, um, at least for, for the perspective of fundraising, which is a, a lot of what WeWork's business is. So, uh, you know, he raised um, for a, a simple real estate company that, that lost uh, a, a dollar for every dollar it took in. Uh, he raised more than any other startup on the planet except for Uber or in the U.S. except for Uber uh, to build what was, you know, briefly the, the country's most valuable startup that really was just the sort of, uh, you know, paper mache uh, house of cards to mix metaphors. Yeah, no, that's that's a good setup because his salesmanship is incredible. You, I, you know, I went back and watched some of his conferences after I read the book and you're like, I get it. And I, I think he had a look. I think the accent helped. I think, you know, that he was considered this rock star founder, which I think VC firms like they're just they seem to be just hypnotized by some of this stuff instead of being straightforward. While the rest of the people who have the same kind of business plan were like, what the hell are they doing? Like, why is everybody think this company's worth so much more? And they positioned themselves as a tech company. They raised billions very early on. And then it became about round, you know, more rounds, more funding, a bunch of banks that wanted to get in on this stuff. But what were some of the early signs? Uh, and feel free to pick as many as you like here, guys, uh, that he was full of shit. Like, what were some of the early signs where you're like, wait a minute, even though everybody's in on this company, um, this isn't a great sign. First of all, I love the Tesla pitch. The Tesla pitch is like him <laughs> in, a, in just the quickest story. So if you want to share that one or any other ones that you have, I know there's a lot to choose from. Uh, yeah, yeah, the Tesla one's really fun. Um, so basically, he, he had uh, long been telling staff how, how much he admired Elon Musk. And, and at one point, he told Forbes, like, if I ever meet him, you know, I'm going to pitch him on WeWork on Mars. And so then he actually managed to get an audience while, while he was in L.A. And 
goes to, to meet him. And Adam is always keeping people really late to, to or, you know, wait around and, and running late to meetings. And so Elon does the same thing to him. He finally gets this very brief window and pitches. It's like, you know, this is what he, he Adam relays to his staff later on. He's like, I pitched him on uh, telling him that, that the hard part wasn't going to be getting to Mars. It was going to be building community once you get there. Uh, and then Elon comes back to me. He's like, no, you idiot. The, the, the hard part is getting to Mars. <laughs> um, and so he was very sort of crestfallen by this. And, and uh, you know, I think his wife told him um, that, that, uh, that really Elon put him in this place. Yeah, and then there's the other one, um, Marine, where you know, he, this is later in the book, but it also speaks to kind of his mindset as he meets with the founder of Airbnb. And he's like, let's do 10,000 properties. Let's build this community. And the guy's like, actually, 10,000 is like a waste of our time. Like with the amount of listings we have, that doesn't mean anything. And then he comes back. He's like, let's do 10 million. And it was just like, it wasn't even, there was no plan. It was just, oh, this guy dumped on my idea. Well, I'll just raise it by this many factors. And now he's going to want to do it. And they were like, who are you? What are you talking about? <laughs> and the simple math with that example, uh, for, as you said, it was too small. And then. Brian Chesky evidently was like, okay, that's like a trillion dollars or something, like a hundred billion dollars based on like the it's a trillion. <laughs> it was a trillion, okay, based on the very simple math of what that would cost. Like, you're completely nuts. <laughs> I think one of the other things that offended me that was far less damaging is that when he got into surfing, he hired jet skis so he didn't have to paddle. And for the big wave guys out there, they're like, hey, Rosillo, everybody does that. No, I get it. I get it. But he was doing it just a random session in the afternoon. He would have jet skis pull him out where nobody else would do that kind of thing. I always thought that that was a bad sign. Okay, so here's the thing is that he's saying they're tech. They have an app that doesn't work. It sounds like they just did a really good job decorating these office buildings and had fancier coffee and beer taps and told everybody it was like, you know, it's a great line. Like some of his marketing and, and lines for the stuff that he would say, like, we are the first physical social network. And you're like, wow, that sounds really good. I mean, some of the T-shirts and built by and all that stuff and this this culture. But I mean, it's not it's at this point, though, it is working, even though clearly the way you title the book, you're like, it's leaning towards this kind of cultish vibe. And it certainly isn't tech as the other people are screaming into the air going, this is a real estate company and these margins don't exist. Yeah, uh, I think he, you know, we we were shocked at how sort of easy it was. Uh, you know, I think when we because we were reporting on this for, for years for the journal and, and, and you know, a ton at the, the, the kind of crash in 2019. And we'd always wondered, uh, you know, surely it must be more complicated than it looks. And surely it wasn't just him saying, oh, this is a tech company in a 15 minute meeting and somebody giving him $4 billion. Uh, but then when we actually looked, that's, there, there wasn't much more to it. So, you know, one of the famous scenes is, is that he meets with Masayoshi Son, the uh, chairman and CEO of SoftBank, which, you know, had a lot of money from the Saudis. And uh, Masa had just raised $45 billion from the Saudis and to spend on tech. And then he meets with Adam for a 12-minute walkthrough of WeWork's headquarters. And then this is on a pit stop on the way Masa is going to visit the president-elect at Trump Tower. And so then they get in the car and go up to Trump Tower. And in that car ride, they hash out a $4 billion deal, uh, which is the you know second largest investment in a startup uh, ever. And so that, you know, to us, like th then what happened is SoftBank actually did due diligence and there are people looking at it. They're like, not only is this a real estate company? We've already looked at it before and we've passed. 
uh, and th- but then that makes its way back up to Masa. And he said, no, I, I want to do this. Um, so yeah, I, I think it was all a lot of um, kind of as obvious as it seemed, as dumb as it seemed. Uh, and, and that was really shocking to us because like these people are, are, are throwing around more money than, than sort of has ever thrown, been thrown around before in, in, in the sport. And, and Maureen, I, let's let's focus again, just to, so under people understand, is that um, Masasone, you know, I don't even know what his deal is other than he just, I, I, I think this is from the outside. You guys cover it. So those of us on the outside are like, so wait, what happens? Like this guy picks bad stocks and Alibaba's like his one win. And so then the Saudis give him $45 billion and then he meets and goes to WeWork for 12 fucking minutes and then gets in a car and they're writing out like it's like he's getting a cocktail waitress's phone number on a napkin and they're like let's do this many and then no let's do this many and then there's another version of the book it's like let's do a trillion dude and he's like yeah you know what it remind me of was the scene in boogie nights where heather graham and julian moore are doing coke and just coming up with the worst ideas ever like that's that scene is what i think of marine when i think of of Masasan and and Adam Newman being like this is because the the thing is is it keeps working it keeps working so you have one person who's kind of delusional talking to somebody else who just is is just as delusional yet these guys are making some of the biggest financial decisions in the history of investing. I, I love that uh, that comparison <laughs> to that scene because it did like it 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 was almost unimaginable as you say like just the sheer speed of everything. And it was, and it goes back to, I mean, you're asking about Masa. Exactly. He did get a lot of bad bets. He spent money in crazy ways that they blew up. He invested a lot during the dot-com boom and then bust. He like lost, he was the richest man in the world. And then he lost more money than anybody. Um, but Alibaba, he made a bet. He, he liked the like glimmer in Jack Ma, the CEO and founder of Alibaba's eyes. He said, um, and it became the best investment of all time. It's, you know, almost like throwing darts at the wall and it gets like a bullseye or two. And it, um, but with this, it, exactly the speed and the speed, like you said, of convincing the Saudis, he decides he wants to build the biggest um, fund in the world. And the Saudis want to invest outside of their country and invest in tech. So within, in a 45 minute meeting, Masa has with the then deputy crown prince of Saudi Arabia, Mohammed bin Salman, he gets a $45 billion commitment. Everything is like speed and these ridiculous numbers of these sort of men in, with giant checkbooks. It's, it's sort of, uh, that was like a theme throughout the whole story of WeWork. And that part of it too, like it, it, when Michael Lewis wrote Liar's Poker, he was, it, you know, when he thought he basically was kind of like, I don't know, it was like discouraging the next wave of, of potential bankers from wanting to get into it. And instead, everybody read the book and hit, hit him up for a job. And if you're in the VC world, like you read this book and you're like, hey, when can we go to Saudi Arabia and pitch these guys? Because <laughs> they just gave. And I understand like the, the, there's going to be people listening to this be like, hey, guys, like that's the whole point is you miss on 20 and you hit one. Like you can't you can't hold us to that kind of standard, but it's very clear that Masasun his 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 work the groundwork that level like he would just be like hey I like the look of this person I like what's in there I like and that's what Adam Newman was great at so you know it's almost all going to work which is what's crazy about this story is that 
you know, Adam's going to get this funding. He's going to get billions from Massasone, who is going to buy back the early rounds of investors. So all those guys are going to make this money. They don't have to go public because clearly Adam didn't want to until he had to, which we'll get to. And yet, once they finally started looking at it, and I think the number is from 2018 to 2019, March 18, March 19, the company lost $219,000 every hour of each day because they were trying to expand to raise the valuation and and keep Masa Sun's funds going and then to hopefully get that second fund that he wanted. And yet this still almost all worked and probably would have if it weren't for the soft bake investments and some other things not working out, correct? Um, so yeah, they were Masa and Adam were close to being sort of partners in the future of WeWork and doing this $20 billion deal. And the interesting thing is actually for as insane as the original investment in the that the Saudis made, the $45 billion in 45 minutes, they were the ones who got really spooked about putting so much money into WeWork. And they said, you know, we wanted to invest outside of, we have a ton of money in real estate. We wanted you to put money in tech. Like we put some money already into it. Like we're not putting another $10 billion into this company. It's a real estate company. So they pulled the plug on, so he couldn't invest with the vision fund. So Masa had to kind of spend SoftBank's money. The, yeah, then the, uh, they did another IPO at Tanks. The sort of global tech market got really hit. And uh, as you said, it was like really... I mean, they've been working on this deal for months and months. And right before the Christmas holiday of 2018, um, they got sort of a verbal, okay, like this is a done deal. And on Christmas Eve, Masa called them and told them, sorry, we just can't go through with it. Right. And so, Elliot, that basically seems like it sets the stage for the 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 IPO, which I think a lot of listeners are like, oh, yeah, I remember like something happened with those guys. Uh, what happened with the IPO, the IPO doc and the people that, you know, and you tell a great story in the documentary that I've seen where you were like hiking in Europe <laughs> and you started reading their filing and you were like, wait, what? And I don't think most of us wouldn't understand what was so offensive. But take us through that part of the story here where now all of this stuff that you uncover in the book starts to become public for the first time. Yeah. So, so they had, you know, after they, they, they run out of fish in the sea to fund them privately, they realized they need to, to go to the public markets, uh, to get money because they're, they're spending, they continue to spend $2 for every dollar they take in. So you need billions of dollars at this point. And so, uh, they, they write, um, you know, need to sort of write a document to the world saying, here's the business, uh, here's what it is. And, and, uh, you know, here's what our mission is. And it turns out that 10 years into the business, nine years into the business, they still didn't even really have, Adam couldn't really define what it was. It was very easy in him for him to do these in-person meetings where he just talk about the future. But when you actually, in an S1, in a document you filed to the public, you, you can't talk about the future. Uh, you have to talk about what you've done. And so that became very difficult for him because they hadn't done very much. They just spent $2 for every dollar they'd taken in. So then they, they also layer on all this sort of mystical woo-woo language. And so um, this was the influence of Adam's wife, Rebecca, uh, they dedicate the, the document, the S1, to the energy of we. Uh, and, you know, their, their new mission statement is to elevate the world's consciousness. This is a, a office space subleasing company. Um, and, uh, you know, they, they then spend, Rebecca, Adam's wife, spends 
hours or days, you know, pouring through photos and they, they, they have a photographer getting a helicopter to take a photo of a rainforest that the Newmans saved in Latin America. They put it on the back cover. And at some point she wants to save, put something about saving the whales in there. Uh, and so I think people sort of see this and then they, you layer on that plus the losses, plus Adam's conflicts, which are, are just sort of this mounting, um, you know, pile of bad governance that, that showed as a real dumpster fire where he's leasing buildings to WeWork uh, that he owns. Um, he uh, took out hundreds of millions of dollars. He bought a jet with the company's money. Um, and then he is... Uh, he sold the the word. This is the sort of the smallest, but the most significant. He sold- By the way, when he bought... He bought a what a sixty million dollar jet, and part of it is that he said it's because he was tall and flying commercial was. Dumb, <laughs> right? In fairness, he is tall. <laughs> <laughs> the poor guy was so tall that it just it had to be done. Six five. <laughs> no one, no one six. Anyone yeah. six four or above just can't fly commercial. You know <laughs> yeah, he had been flying private for 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 years and and causing all sorts of problems with with these these private jet companies that would rent it to him. And they actually kept getting mad because there, there are numerous incidents of, of the jet companies getting upset because they were spitting tequila on each other and, and getting sick all throughout the cabin was one email. Another one got mad because he ripped down a credenza. Someone on the flight ripped down a credenza multiple times and, and they kept having to take the jets out of service. There were spills. Uh, so he bought his own jet with, with, with WeWork's money. Um, and so everyone sees this. Actually, the jet wasn't disclosed so that people had to read the Wall Street Journal. But... Um, uh, and then, you know, these things kind of add up together and, and people look at this thing and, and there's just absolutely no magic to it at all. And, and, uh, yeah, I, I was in, in Europe, but thankfully hiking and, and thankfully Maureen was, uh, stateside ha- having to work. Uh, yeah, I saw the Scott Galloway part. Um, for those that know, you know, he's, he's in the financial world as a commentator, essentially. I mean, he, I know he does more than that author and everything else, but, um, he was, he basically was like, it was like reading somebody who had taken mushrooms and decided to file this, this report. And that's some of the stuff that, you know, we haven't even really touched on in all the different directions I can go in this book is that like, I start to have a real hard time with like, I just, I don't like frauds. I don't like, I don't like frauds that are also arrogant on top of everything else. And Adam had this, this, this vibe where, you know, the balls to stand in front of all these other founders at these summits at these tech conferences and be like okay your company's worth this and your company's worth this but what are you doing to change the world and at every turn he's a total hypocrite he's cashing in on stocks when nobody else can he's borrowing against his 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 position which again is not like unheard of and if banks want his business especially his ipo business they're going to hand him the best mortgages and loans he could ever possibly want but he's got hundreds of millions of dollars of what property he's got you know some of the stuff that he's doing on the stock you know, again, it's it's not even like they're just shares that he owns that aren't cashed out that he's cashing out to live this lifestyle. And he's and he's saying, like, you know, I hope to one day each year take on world hunger. And then the next summit, he'll be like, I want to end orphans. You know? <laughs> and then and then he was like, I want to be president of the world. And then he's like, I hope I'm going to position in a couple of years to to solve, you know, hopefully like when there's Middle East strife, they can just call me up and I can work it out. And it's like like anyone who's ever had any coverage of the middle east is like hey you think a guy who rents desks could probably fucking figure this out for all these countries is there any way that guy could help um is he really this arrogant did he really believe this stuff or was this just him buying into his own thing because if you're him you're going hey whatever i'm doing it's working 
it's working. And the, the IPO doc was like the first wake up call. It's like, no, no, it doesn't work this way. So I guess I'm, I'm, I'm always trying to figure out with his character, like how much did he believe his own bullshit? I think he believed a lot of it. I, I think some of it was like, hey, I said all this and I did it and it keeps working. But I think he did like the, you know, the narcissism, the megalomania. I mean, as you said, I mean, you, you lay it out really well. It just kept on getting like bigger and more and more insane. I mean, to the idea of Middle East peace, um, one of his like very senior people, well after this whole thing imploded, I remember like sort of saying, ha ha ha, like he used to talk about this, right? He's like, he did. But you know, if you really think about it, if anyone could do it, like, I really think Adam, it, it's not crazy to think that he could do that. It's like, wow, like, he's still, <laughs> like I couldn't even believe the words came so out. So people like, now. whether, right. And so that's something that I think needs, this isn't a man acting alone. This is, this is him. There isn't like, you know, there doesn't feel like there's a lieutenant necessarily, but the board approved all the stuff that he did. And yeah. I know in the IPO doc and you guys push back on it. I think, I don't know. I don't I don't, I don't want to get in your own heads on this, but like him having 20 votes per share so that no matter what he was going to run this company, like if I were a founder and if I can get away with it, I would do it. I would ask for it. And, and he got it. And then they were like, look, you can't do it this way now. Um, but he was. He just had this, I would say, what, thousands of employees that bought into all of this stuff, that it wasn't just a saying on the T-shirt, that they actually were, as they say in the doc, like raising the consciousness. I mean, it's just it sounds like a made up book title of like a book that would be the worst title ever, you know, like like <laughs> me, myself and me, you know, like my story or, you know, what I mean, like all all of the sayings and stuff like these everybody was on board and maybe they were just on board because they thought they were going to get shares at some point when it went public and it was like why not i don't know i think that's one of our our sort of theories as to how like what one of the central questions of, that we have is like and hopefully the book sort of answered is is um how can smart people do so many sort of dumb things here uh and because I, people often bring up theranos um, but that that's a very different situation in that that was sort of unsophisticated investors uh, like, you know, Betsy DeVos and Henry Kissinger uh, putting money into um, a tech company that they didn't know anything about. Uh, here you have some of the more sophisticated investors in the world, Harvard, T. Rowe Price, Fidelity, Benchmark Capital and VC, JP Morgan, Goldman Sachs. I mean, you, you know, a ton of them. Um, and they all were blinded by this. And, uh, you know, I, I, I think, yeah, it's, it's sort of this question of, can people self-rationalize anything to themselves? And uh, it, my answer these days is yes. I, I didn't think that before, but it's very easy to sort of have your mind melt, apparently, and just look at something as, as worth 20 times more than it is actually worth because a few other people said the same thing. And then at some point, I think to the, uh, like what you were saying about just people like getting shares, I think the extent that some people had wake up calls, um, it was like, why say anything now? Let's just like ride this out and like get our riches. Like the pot of gold is waiting with this IPO. So whether you're, it was like bankers at JP Morgan that were going to get huge fees, like sure, Adam's insane. This IPO document's insane, but like, whatever, he's going to fire us if we push back. So we'll let it go. 
Um, yeah, yeah, actually, that, that that happened at the board level. Like, so there were actual yeah. conversations at the board, which Adam did control effectively, but but they would never vote against him anyway, even though they had autonomous votes. But but they were saying sort of toward the end, realizing like, wow, we continue to lose a lot of money here. Um, maybe we should be pushing back on. And he continues to do things like buy wave pool companies and jets, even though we, we tell him not to. Um, maybe we should, you know, be harder on him. And, and their conclusion was, well, we just need to get him to the public markets because that will bring him discipline in the, in a way that he won't listen to us. Um, and I think that, you know, up until then, they'd sort of rationalize by like, well, the stock just keeps going up and, and my investment keeps getting better. Yeah, right. Because every time, I mean, the jumps in valuation are unheard of. I mean, and that is usually a pretty good sign. You're like, why is this worth $6 billion more this week than it was last week? And then yeah. now it's up another $10 billion? Like, I mean, you know, and then he would just go to the next round of funding and people would do it. And, you know, look, Goldman is supposed to be the standard. And I'm, I'm not close to being versed enough in the world to know the difference. I could pick any bank if I wanted to and go, okay, why would you guys do that? You guys are idiots. But like even going back to Billion Dollar Whale, and the Malaysian fund and Goldman's involvement with that. And you're actually, if you hold Goldman shares, you're going, oh no, is this going to hurt the stock price? Well, no, it did nothing. Yeah. And Goldman's share price is absurd. It, and, and they were, they were going to lead the charge on this. And they knew they had to act, act it out with Newman to get the IPO business. So like, that's another part of this that I don't think people understand is like, you can tell him the truth of what he's really worth, but then you may not get the transaction. So you have to basically lie to him to get the transaction and then talk him down from the lies and the pitch. And so everybody's kind of complicit. And I think it, it kind of jumps to this, like, it can't all be full of shit, right? Like the VC world can't all be like this because then nothing, like clearly things work and we're enamored with the failures, you know, which maybe is just the entertainment value that we get out of it. Um, but can you help me understand, like, Clearly, enough of this world still works despite so many headlines. It seemed to be how come all these smart people keep doing these things that don't make any sense? Like, do you just go out there and start pitching stuff and then people give you money? Because that sounds like, and I think there's actually like a rush of people that are like, I don't even know what business I want to run. I just want to be a founder and live the lifestyle. Yeah. I mean, I think what it, what it ultimately comes down to, I mean, they're so, what they're looking for is this like, visionary founder that's going to like buck the system totally like upend the whole industry and make you know the next uber the next airbnb and like there is a sense that you have to put your money behind so like being kind of crazy is a good thing um there are these you know things that they look for and adam sort of got a chance to like m you know morphed himself in. i mean he was that person anyway but essentially, I mean, the model of the industry is like, you know, it's kind of Masa. And obviously, he did this to the most extreme version. But the best VC firms, you lose, you put money into 10 companies, you get two home runs that turn into like, maybe not $100 billion companies, but they turn into, you put, you know, 10, $100 million, they turn into $10 billion companies. And that wipes out. All, I mean, you go so far beyond all your other losses. So there, it's like a, it's a gambling industry where you're willing to take big bets on founders. It does seem like I think Adam Newman shows just how kind of out of control it's gotten. But the crazy thing is, I mean, they're still minting like big wins too, you know, and the, a lot of these wins are still wiping other things out. Like if you had a bet on Airbnb early. I mean, look at where it's gone. Just take, you know, you could, you could take a few examples. Of that. 
Yeah, I, I think one common thing we've seen is, you know, and who knows, because the markets are pretty frothy today for these types of companies, um, again, but, uh, you know, a lot of the stuff that kind of seemed absurd <laughs> ended up being absurd. And so if you look at things that um, worked, it was largely software companies. Um, and Airbnb, at the end of the day, really is just sort of like a travel booking website. Uh, so like they weren't spending money to lease uh, apartments, they they were letting other people do that, and then they they just sort of took a cut. Uh, whereas companies like WeWork uh, that are you know literally leasing buildings, um, they haven't done as well. Companies like Uber, which which uh, I think you know did well for the super early VCs, has seen its valuation kind of be flat since 2015. Uh, or share price, and so like you know that's that's extremely expensive business where they they have to you know essentially bribe people to drive for them. Um, so uh, I don't know. I, I think it's it's the, the the business software companies are the ones that have ended up generally doing the best, which is kind of what you'd expect from tech investors as opposed to putting money into scooters or, or mattresses. Okay, two things that I want to hit on. Um, what would uh, what would Adam? say, I don't know, have you, have you talked to Adam? Have you guys had any correspondence? Like, what would he say to all of this? I mean, I, I guess we could guess, but like, what is there one part of this that he's pushed back on the most with you? We have not gotten a lot of pushback. I mean, we we really hope to interview him. He he declined ultimately to sit for the interview. Um, he knew all the questions we were having, you know, through a PR representative. We haven't heard very much of it. I mean, I can, you can imagine, like, he's just telling, I mean, what we hear is he's, you know, telling his next story. He, he, we hear constantly, like, he's working on his next act, whether it's, you know, all these different businesses he's going to fund. I mean, he's a, he's a, not just a paper billionaire anymore. I mean, he's, he got a huge payout as this company crumbled. So how did he do, by the way, can you hit on those numbers? So everybody understands what happened here with him, because his exit may have been humiliating, but it still worked out, right? Sure. Yeah, it was, I mean, unbelievable. I'll, I'll just say like part one, I mean, the company, the IPO gets called off and all of a sudden, I mean, right away, it's like this company could actually go bankrupt. They were pitching it. It was going to be like a hundred billion. Bankers were saying, oh, you could be like a hundred billion dollar company. IPO gets called off because the market's too scared of Adam Newman as the CEO. They need money so desperately. We find out that they're going to run out of, the IPO's called off in September. They're on track to run out of money by like, before Thanksgiving, they don't even have enough money to pay for layoffs. So there's this huge push to save the company as quickly as possible. They get SoftBank to write a big check to kind of take over the company. And as part of that, they give Adam a package at that time that was essentially valued at $1.7 billion. And that includes uh, a four-year non-compete. They say they pay him $185 million to... uh, like help them and not start his own company as like a consulting fee. It's he can sell his shares. They sort of renegotiate a loan, like hundreds of millions in a loan. And he, the whole package is around that size. And this is a, essentially all to get him to give up control of the company. That's what he promises. And then the numbers, and Elliot, I think you know this better than me. By the next year, he they're involved in litigation. SoftBank's trying to renege on some of this. And actually, Adam finds, winds up getting even more money than this insane package. Yeah, I, th- I think the basic lesson is is you, um, you can build a, a company that that burns through like ten billion dollars of investors' money, 
and um, you, you know, they, they used, I think, 11 or 12-ish billion dollars to build a company worth 8 billion, uh, and yet you can still leave a billionaire. Um, and so, you know, for, for entrepreneurs uh, watching from aside, aspiring entrepreneurs, it's actually a great template if your your, your goal is uh, to get absurdly wealthy. Um, I'm not sure what lessons there are for society in that, but um, it is. It, it's not a very comforting tale that that you can essentially just uh, you know convince the world of something that isn't, uh, have thousands of people lose their jobs, and you leave extremely wealthy. Yeah, I mean, I guess the lesson is that is that if you're the founder and it's still going to be a company that survives and I, you know, there's there's whatever you want to say about him. And it's not like any of us have complimented him for 30 minutes is that that's that's the way it works. And it sucks. I'm not I'm not saying, hey, I think that's great. And it, it sucks for all these employees, thousands of employees. And like some of the original first hires are watching this guy buy house after house, take out loan against Eight shares of them. <laughs> and and and. and and they're like, wait, when do we get to do this stuff? And he's and he's talking about how you're raising consciousness and changing the world and all this stuff. And it's like, no, actually, you're just like everybody else. You're just selfish. Like you just you're selfish and you did. Now, I, I did you have more on that, Elliot? Because I have one final thought. I, I, I just want to emphasize the um, irony of, of building a company called We. But he, he, he ended up being like by far the most selfish person I've ever come across in importing. Yeah. And that's that was another thing that I loved is that. He had this one pitch where he was like, you know, it's the iPhone, it's the iPad, it's the iMac. We are we. And it was like, <laughs> is that clever or is that stupid? And it's like, I don't know. I guess it's working. And you're right. It wasn't we, it was I. He was as much about I as you could possibly be. Um, now, to be fair to WeWork, the signs are still out. Any major city that you're driving through, you see them. They did a complete overhaul. They had to pay them to go out. Um, there's still something. It feels like the bones of of this company are still worth something salvageable. So to be fair to the, you know, because if you read the book and you're like, oh, they're the worst. Um, what's fair to say about what this company is now post Adam? It's a real estate company. I mean, they've shed all these ancillary businesses that seem kind of crazy and didn't seem like a good fit, whether it's like the education or the wave pool, they sold the jet. Um, yeah, they hired a real estate CEO and they've survived the pandemic, which is a feat. You know, it's like we all left offices. They made it through then. I think the future of it is very unclear. I mean, it could, we could, and I don't think we quite know. I mean, do people, do big companies scale back their office footprint and put a big chunk of their employees into WeWorks and let them kind of come and go or not? I don't know. I think the future has yet to be written. The one thing we know is it's going to be a real estate company and it's just not going to be quite as interesting going forward, but it could be, you know, going, it'll be a going concern most likely that could, could do pretty well. It's going public uh, this month. You can buy shares in WeWork on, uh, you know, you could trade them in your uh, your account. <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, the, the first thing people would say is, you know, well, wait a minute. And it's like, well, you know, this is, that's not what the company is now. This is now being established as they kind of know who they are. They look in the mirror and they see the truth. And for the longest time, they didn't. And so uh, I think that's the way you kind of have to look at this company as almost, you'd almost think there'd be value in not having the same name, you know, go a little Don Draper on you. And, and just, you know, change, change the deal up because anybody that reads the book is going to go, wait, you know, why would I want to invest in this? And I, you know, I know a couple of people who work for the company and they're just like, look, man, <laughs> like, yes, the book is not great. 
but you know, we, we are not that company anymore. Like we know who we are. And I was like, all right, whatever. Um, tremendous work. I hope you guys are getting all the praise you deserve on this one. Um, I, I can't imagine the amount of research and, and time that goes into something, but just know that a lot of people appreciate it. And I was one of them. Nicole Tui, Elliot Brown, Maureen Farrell. Thanks for your time. Thank you so much. Thanks for having us. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. La Quinta by Wyndham has everything you need for your next business trip. From free high-speed Wi-Fi to fitness centers to free bright side breakfast with fresh waffles, eggs, and more, book direct at LQ.com. Tonight, La Quinta, tomorrow you shine. This episode is brought to you by Hulu Plus Live TV. Looking for a better way to watch live TV? Stream your favorite sports and shows on over 95 live channels with Hulu Plus Live TV. Get access to Hulu's entire streaming library, Disney Plus and ESPN Plus, all in one plan. Start your free trial of Hulu Plus live TV today. Live TV plan required. Restrictions apply. Access content from each service separately. Learn more at Hulu.com. You want details? Bye. I drive a Ferrari. 355 Cabriolet. What's up? I have a ridiculous house in the South Fork. I have every toy you can possibly imagine. And best of all, kids, I am liquid. So, now you know what's possible. Let me tell you what's required. Okay, let's do some life advice here. Life advice rr at gmail.com. I'm going to bring this one up because I had this happen to me sort of as well today uh, as I'm on the road. All right, uh, our guy's checking in from, uh, we're not going to say where. He's 6'5", 230, uh, mostly dad bod. His cleaning jerk is 170. His snatch is 110. Thanks for that. But there's a reason he did that. Something happened to me tonight at the gym. I need to know if I handled it correctly. A little background. The gym I go to um, is also where I work. It's a large facility for the military, open to the public. He's not military. I'm currently covering maternity leave and working from home, but working three to four, working out three or four times a week and having to occasionally go in for my current position. I'm frequently at this gym and very familiar with the entire facility and the regular users. I am into Olympic lifting. I guess I'm the equivalent of a street ball version of Olympic lifting. I've never been coached, but I've developed some proficiency. I entered CrossFit lifting room and place. Oh, okay. All right. So we're in it. Now we're in it. So he goes into the CrossFit area where he works out at this military facility. He put his shoes, snap clips, water bottle, keys besides the usual rack that he uses. He pulled out one of the good bars and set it in the rack on the J-cups. He grabs a bench. He puts that beside the rack. He also put the plates that he was going to use around the rack area. So he took the plates off and then like put them around the squat rack. At the time, there were probably two other people using stuff in the room. I proceeded to leave the room for basketball court to begin my warm-up. It consists of mobility and band work, finished off some light pitching of a lacrosse ball, helps keep my back loose. I probably returned to the CrossFit lifting room after 10 to 15 minutes. Upon entering the room, there are now six people present, two regulars, one of which is an also an Olympic lifter using a rack who I haven't spoken to prior to last night. Two randoms doing bicep curls on the benches. Two juice monkeys, definitely not military, who were using my rack. Needless to say, when I saw my rack had been taken, I was livid. It appeared as though the one juice monkey was training the second one. They were doing bench press in the bar, completely loaded. More on this later. I walked over to the far side of my rack and began gathering my items. The trainer juice monkey said something to me. It was a little tricky to hear as my headphones in, listening to your Oh, he's listening to Steve Smith pot. Shout out. Thank you. Some of the effect of, quote, oh, were you using this rack? I quickly snapped back, yes, but just stay there. I decided that response to the best course of action instead of making them move. During my rest breaks and my workout, I tend to observe what others are doing in the room. Every time the one juice monkey would go to do his bench set, uh, the spring clip would pop off the bar and the end plate would wobble a little bit. It seemed a bit dangerous, especially considering the other juice monkey was more interested in taking photos and videos of the maxed out bar. 
it was then that I realized the bar was maxed with 10 pound plates. So I counted the plates and there were found out there was a hundred pounds aside. So, um, we're talking 245. So instead of putting on 45s in a 10, they put on a bunch of 10s to make it look like it was a ton of weight. All right. Well, that's not great. Side note, my foul mood was somewhat broken after hearing about your duck photo. All right. Well, glad we could help. After they completed their workout, they cleaned up their weights, but left the bench and plates that I'd originally put on, out on that rack. Not surprising. And I thought about pulling the staff card and telling them to clean it up, but thought that that would be a bit much of a dick move. Instead, they left and I finished my workout. As I was putting my weights away, the other regular Olympic lifter looked over at me and I removed my headphones. We had a discussion about the two, what was going on. I told the other guy about being torn. I had to handle having my rack taken and whether I should have made them move. He told me that he would definitely made them move and have to relocate. Um, all of their 10 pound plates. So this is where I need help. Did I handle this the best way I should, or should I have made them move? Um, and he sent me a picture of what his setup is, which is really important to this whole thing. So it's the rack. He's got the bench over there and he has all these plates around. There's six plates on the ground around a rack. All right, here's the problem. You sound like a really nice guy. You set up everything, put all your shit down and you left for 10 or 15 minutes. So I just don't have a ton of sympathy for you. I don't. Because if the gym were busy and you showed up and you saw this rack not being used with shit everywhere for 10 or 15 minutes and somebody claims it like it's a dinner reservation, it's just not the way it works. Again, I was in a new place the other day. Um, the squat rack was taken. The Smith machine was taken. There were plates out by the Smith machine that the person was clearly doing some sort of you know, extension stuff where their toes were on the plates and then that's how they're using the Smith machine. And then the leg press on top of that was all fucking loaded up with four plates on each side. And then I realized it was like some girl that's like the only attractive girl at the gym. So no one ever gives her a hard time about leaving her shit everywhere. And because I saw it and I was like, you gotta be kidding me with this. And then I was in there this morning and then lo and behold, it was the exact same deal. I think she does legs six days a week. Again, it's not my home gym. I don't know much about it, but I realized that all these guys are like, whatever we like looking at her. So no one says anything to her, but I'd like to interview some someone who, but I don't know how we could ever do it where it would work, where someone is like, hey, we want to have somebody on who leaves shit around all the time, never puts their stuff back. We just want to understand you. We want to get in your head because it's so easy to clean up after yourself. And yet some of you refuse to do it. Like you think it's your world. So I don't think that's necessarily your deal here. And I'll admit the Olympic lifting stuff, that protocol is a little different than what I'm used to in just sort of normal gyms. But I'll, I'll also explain it this way. Like I had a buddy they got a college thread. He's an active guy. He doesn't lift a lot. I think he was away. This is pre-COVID. He was away working. So he's staying at a hotel. And he was like, Rosilla, what's the call here? He goes, I went down to the gym in the hotel. There was one squat rack. It was actually a pretty decent hotel gym. And there was a guy that had just started. And I was like, you know, maybe I'll do a little legs here and do some squats. And the guy had just gotten started. And I said, hey, you know, how many more do you have to go? And the guy goes, like, I'm going to be here for a little bit know, 10 minutes or so, which actually isn't very long in the Olympic world. And my friend was like, he wouldn't let me work in. I was like, wait, what'd you do? He goes, I just asked, Hey, do you mind if I work in? And he said, no. He's like, can you believe that? I was like, yeah, actually I can. I go, you just don't, if you're not working out with the other person protocol is that, you know, squat rack guys usually just don't let somebody else work in that they don't know. I mean, somebody might, but somebody saying no to you in that, that instance isn't all that rare. And he couldn't believe it, right? He couldn't believe it. And I go, this is another one of those cases where, and I don't know if this is specific to this country, but we do this a lot, where we tell the people that are doing the thing, that live in that world, the people that are from the outside always tell the people on the inside, like, oh, you're doing it wrong or something else is wrong. The best equivalent I can come up with is whenever I read something about ESPN or something that happened, because I still have enough friends, I talk to people about stuff that happens and I'll read something and be like, that's not what happened. That's not how you would handle it. That's the wrong take. Like, that's completely wrong. 
And then if I say to somebody, yeah, that's not really how it, how it works. And they'd be like, well, they should do it this way. I'm like, yeah, but that's not what happens. Like, yeah, but they should. I'm like, okay, cool. I walked around there for 15 years. You've been there zero days, but you're going to tell me. So my buddy asking about the squat rack, I was like, yeah, it's just not the way it works. And he was like, well, that's stupid. That's wrong. I was like, yeah, but you're the one that's wrong. And you're admitting you don't even know this world. So back to the email. Um, the fact that the guys took pictures, the guy, that they use 10-pound plates, that whole deal, I just don't know what gym where it's cool if it's now busy and stuff is taken up where you're allowed to just put all your shit down and then nobody's allowed to use that rack. Again, how would you feel if there was an empty rack with stuff everywhere and no one had used it for 10 to 15 minutes? I would say in the future, do your band work ahead of time and then go over to the rack. I think you already know that. But again, I don't know. I, I don't go to any of these CrossFit spots. So I, I don't know if that's cool. I mean, some people just take forever in the racks. It sucks. But I don't think you're allowed to just set up and then not be back because that's what sucks about people just putting stuff down like that because you never quite know. And then if you get sick of it, you're like, all right, hey, I'm going to move some stuff. And then the person shows up and like, I can't believe you moved it. And it's like, well, I can't believe you were gone. So Kyle, anything on that? Yeah, I mean, it, it seems like he's creating like a force field around this thing, like almost like it's like bait car or something like you're begging. Like, how long can I leave and see if somebody's going to get in this car or not? Like, I don't know. Isn't isn't that one of the most coveted things? I mean, I'm not a huge lifter, but I, every time I would go to um, a gym, I feel like there's always like two out of the three benches are in rotation. If not, there's somebody waiting. Right. So it's like definitely, definitely a hot commodity, but more like real like relatable to my life it's sort of like a bar stool like the bar is getting a little packed this was like a week and a half ago the bar was getting a little packed right next to pantages there big theater it let out and um i went and i burned down a red outside and i put a i put the um coaster on top of my beer just like you're supposed to and i came back and and i was gone for like five minutes but you know whatever the bar was starting to get a little packed. I noticed it. Then I came back in and these two girls were sitting in my seat and she's looking at me. She just didn't even move my drink. She's like, oh, did you want your seat back? And initially I said yes. And then I just kind of looked around and I saw there was a, you know, a different seat, not where I was sitting, but over there. And I was like, you know what? I'll just move. It's okay. Like she clearly knew that my stuff was there. It didn't matter. It was a public seat at the bar. There's only so many. And then I just went and kind of went to the curl rack, if you will, and just sat over at the end of the bar instead. I know that I could have made a stink about it, but I know I really didn't have a, a total claim to anything. It's a public thing. Yeah, she was on your squat rack and then you decided to do a little thigh blasting because it was open because nobody ever uses that. Yeah, and like 10 and five minutes is different than 15. So, I mean, it's really like I just ran to go fill up my water at the water fountain and then somebody's like sitting on my thing. A good bartender um, does a better job making sure that doesn't happen, by the way. Yeah, dark room would have never happened, but frolic room, I'm still kind of feeling things up. Yeah, you'll get there, buddy. I believe that. And by the way, she knew exactly what she was doing. That's one of the male-female things where women get away with that. And they always know what they're doing because they just know that most of us are going to be like, all right, whatever. Um, especially if she's attractive. She's like, I've been doing this my whole life, getting away with shit. Yeah, she so, wasn't. And I actually did want to make her get up, but um, I... I looked around, I saw there was one, because with Frolic Room, it's like a small bar, no windows. There's probably about 15 seats at the bar, and then there's um, the seats around the walls, which has like a small little bar like that you can rest your elbows on, but that's it. And there's like, you're facing the wall, and I never want to be there. That's like you're in fucking timeout. So like, it's actually, it was actually, the stakes were kind of high, and there was luckily one seat, but I was going to be like, I was ready to say like, yeah, I do want it back, and I'll see what happens. But when I saw the one seat, I changed my game up. But for like a solid 10 seconds there, I was like, yeah, what are you, you going to do when I say I do want my seat back? Do this. 
It would have been hilarious too. Her friend was sitting there and then you get up and then her friend stayed there and you were like, huh, she's kind of beat, huh? <laughs> she's like, what? <laughs> um, here's the, how about we just do this, put frolic room on notice. And this is your warning. Next time Kyle goes to crank down a dart, you know, within a reasonable amount of time, five minutes is, is fine. We expect his seat to be there when he comes yeah, back. Yeah, it's never here. longer than five minutes. And the other problem is they have the steel, the stools with like the rounded bottoms. So it's not like you can kind of push it up against the bar and, and then people will really get the idea. Like if yeah. your drink's covered with a coaster, that's one thing. I mean, you would think everyone knows, but if the seat is also cocked, you know, leaned up against the bar, you should also, you should pretty much know, but um, it would be kind of dangerous because it's got one of those rounded bottoms. So it could just really fall and hurt someone. So it wasn't really an option. Final email here, because um, this is going to be quick. 65, 10% body fat. Congrats. I'm 31 and recently engaged with a girl who's extremely out of my league. I know the stats above don't seem that bad, but I do check the other important uh, relationship boxes. Good job, loyal, trustworthy. But to be frank, I'm pretty unfortunate looking. And to make matters worse, um, he's bald. So there you go. Or about to be. Um, so he's telling us he's not hot and his hair isn't great, but he's a pretty good-sized guy. My question is how to deal with a massive difference in looks. I know a lot of guys would say, quote, be happy and enjoy it, but it's hard. When the other guy checks out uh, my girl, all right, so this is out kicking your coverage is what our guy is saying here. So he's he's 31, he's not hot, and apparently his fiance is. Um, he goes, when every other guy checks her out, I feel as if they're judging me and her because of the difference and want to take their shot with her. I get guys are going to check her out simply because she's attractive and has nothing to do with me, but it's become difficult to enjoy a night out with her. In your head, you size up every guy you come across like you want to fight him. I know confidence is a huge factor in these situations, and working out gives me a short-term boost of it, but it isn't a permanent solution. I should also mention the issues that are not with my fiance because she doesn't reciprocate the looks, and I trust her fully. Any advice for us guys who've outkicked their coverage? Yeah, find something else to fucking complain about. All right. This is like writing in and saying, hey, I'm rich, but I'm running out of things to buy. We can't help you. Because you don't need any. Be happy. Is the only advice that I can give you. Word. I'm in the same situation, way out of my league, but we've been going strong now for a couple of years. And I just like whenever it happened, like we're in L.A., there's always dudes like standing on a sidewalk, like selling hoodies. And they're like, oh, you should come be with me. And then I'll just make a joke to her as we walk away that that guy's selling hoodies. Like, just be funny in those moments when you're feeling insecure. I imagine if you're ugly, you're probably pretty funny. Yeah. And would you want it to be the other way around? Like, would you want, you know, people to be like, wow, you're so much hotter than your significant other? Probably not. So, like, you you got a maid here. You're fine. But I need more on Kyle and these random people that just talk shit to you on the side of the road telling you that you're not hot and that <laughs> your girlfriend's way hotter than you are. I mean, there's really not much else to say. It just kind of follows us everywhere. You know, luckily she's busy. She works a lot and I'm busy. So it doesn't happen all the time. Happened a lot more pre-pandemic. But, um, you know, I'm just, I know, I know what, where I shine. And that's like being tall and being funny. Not necessarily being, um, you know, rock solid and, um, and the best fashion or anything. So I just, I know my lane and I pick my shots. I don't think you're unattractive. I think you're a bad dresser. Well, I didn't say, I didn't say, yeah, exactly. Exactly. But I think that's your choice. And you give great advice on any potential criminal situation. Um, so I kind of more fascinated with the dynamic of the hoodie salesman just shooting their shot all the time because you're not small. 
Yeah, but you know, Melrose, those guys have guns and knives. And it's like, it's, and not even like, um, not even that it comes down to that. It's just almost like a throwaway line. It's almost like a threat. Like he's yeah, throwing right. that line to 300 people and for weeks it's not working. And then maybe one time he'll get somebody who's like, just not just like walking with a friend and it's not a boyfriend. And like, I don't know if it ever works for that guy, but you know, I just I say, know it he's like the return on investment there. Would he not is be great. chum in the waters. It's not You're even more likely lines. to get fought than you are to actually have, you know, change the girl's mind about who she should be with. Yeah, but they're usually in a group of one or two guys, and it's just like maybe they're actually looking for the fight. Even who know who knows? But you know, we just walk yeah, away, and then and then I say the joke to her. I don't say the joke in front of the crazy guy selling hoodies. I just I say it to her, like you know. And we all know too, if the knife is the knife is over three inches, the rule is that you have to yeah, anything I'm out. over I'm out. three inches, right? Yeah, we gotta we gotta bounce. Um, would you say you've been going strong though? For a couple of years because didn't you don't you guys constantly break up so super volatile in the beginning super volatile and i made okay. the mistake i was like watching football with bill and i would just kind of tell him on the weekends like oh yeah you know i've been bouncing around for a while and now i found this one i really like she's the hottest girl's ever talked to me and then i'd be like <laughs> oh shit it's like after a friday or saturday night i'd be like oh dude you won't believe it and then we record the podcast on monday and he talks about it and i was like oh wait a second i didn't know so then uh, that became like a an episodic thing when i was just kind of telling my uncle who was like my only family out here what what was going on <laughs> so it took and he me shared couple, it with everybody it took me a little while to realize what was happening and then i was like well i guess it would maybe hurt the ratings if, if i if i stopped <laughs> so i just kind of let it go but she doesn't know to this day that it was a whole thing so but i mean that was now we've been three plus years without a breakup so oh well that's great news all right great yeah. way to end the podcast um okay Good stuff, everybody. Thanks to Kyle and Steve, the Ryan Russillo podcast. Check us out every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. We get the NBA season starting. Uh, we may even do a little baseball. We're, we're TBD. We'll see how that goes. All right. Please subscribe. Spotify. Ring. Talk to you Friday. 